0: To the teaching of God's word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher.
1: Daniel Crocker, age 39, he turned himself in. As a Christian, he said it was the right thing to do. Daniel Crocker, he lived with his wife of 11 years, Nicolette, and their two children in a quiet area of Virginia. Now he was a warehouse manager and his wife was a stay-at-home mom homeschooling their two children, Isaac, age nine, and Annalise, just eight years old. And they were active in their local church. But the entire time, Daniel was living with a secret, a terrible secret. Here's what happened. When he was just 19 years of age, he was addicted to drugs and alcohol, everything that goes with it. And during one of those drug-fueled rages, Daniel had killed a 19-year-old young girl. And he'd gotten away with it. This was before his salvation. And when he first met his wife, he told her all about it. Knowing that he'd been on drugs, knowing that he had done this before salvation, they moved forward in their relationship. But over the years, they struggled. They struggled with how to reconcile the killing with their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, he had asked for God's forgiveness, And he understood that God had forgiven him. He understood that, but he also understood that he had gotten away with a crime. And the burden seemed to get heavier as time went on. As time went on, it got harder for him. And Daniel felt that as a follower of Jesus Christ, he should obey the laws of the government. That God has put the authority of the governments there for our our good. And the laws of the land dictated that he should turn himself in and face his time. Well, Daniel began ministering to an inmate as part of a prison outreach sponsored by his local church. And after one of his visits, his wife asked him this question. How can you go and visit this man and tell him all about God? And you know in your heart that you should be there too. They prayed about it. And for the next several weeks, Daniel debated. He debated how to turn himself in. So he quit his job and he explained to his children what had happened. And the family prayed together and they read from the Bible and the children cried and they begged their dad and they said, don't do this, please. But tearfully, he tried to explain to them, daddy was wrong for taking the life of another person. I have to go because I'd be a hypocrite if I raised you by the word of God and I did not do this. I cannot live with that. He boarded a plane alone and that night he confessed his crime to the police. He made no deal with prosecutors and was charged with first-degree murder. As a father, that's probably one of the toughest situations that we could ever imagine. And whether you agree or disagree with his actions, that's not the point this morning. We must say this, that here was a man who desperately wanted to be right with the Lord. He wanted to be right with the Lord, no matter the cost, So he confessed his sins to the authorities. Confession. Confession is our subject this morning. Confession for sins before salvation in Christ. Confession for sins before a Catholic priest. Confession of sins as part of salvation. And confession of sins to restore fellowship with God for the child of God. These are just some of the ideas that are out there in regard to 1 John. And at the heart of it, I believe with all my heart, is that people are trying to figure out what does God expect of them? What does God expect of them? In one of my first Bible college classes at Moody Bible Institute, I was told to memorize 1 John 1.9. So I did. Young Bible college students should memorize 1 John 1.9. Everybody should memorize 1 John 1.9. You know what it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all what? Unrighteousness. Then a few classes later in my Bible college training, another professor made a passing reference, just a passing drive by kind of reference to that same text. He said that some think this refers to a test, not an instruction for believers, but that it's more a test of your salvation Well, that confused me. I got confused. Knowing that each scripture can have only one intended meaning handed down, written down by God. I wanted to know for myself, does this refer to the gospel or does this refer to the life of a believer? Because it matters. It absolutely matters. Christians. It matters because it is one of two primary passages in the New Testament that people use to support the idea that we must confess something in order to have eternal life. We're going to look at the other one next week. And it matters because this passage stands front and center for the believer in Christ in their journey to walk with the Lord Jesus. And the books and the sermons and the podcasts, they go all over the rails on this text missing what i believe to be some of the most encouraging words in the new testament for the believer in jesus christ listen to me closely and i'm going to prove this to you this morning from the word of god first john is not written not written to test who is in the faith that's not what it's about it is not about examining whether or not you have truly believed in jesus christ for salvation first john like the rest of the New Testament, is written for believers, to the family of God, to encourage them to remain in fellowship with Jesus Christ. This message is not just about eternal life. The message is that fellowship with God is the essence of eternal life. So let's walk through this text this morning. John, who was he? Well, he was one of the Lord's closest followers one of the Lord's closest followers, the son of Zebedee, a fisherman, a close friend to Simon Peter. John was one of the earliest disciples of Christ. This is the man described by his own words as the one whom Jesus loved. John saw his Savior die upon the cross and the years had ticked by and John had been living at Ephesus, probably the last apostle to be alive. John was writing to the house churches of Asia Minor. The apostolic witness to Christ's life and the resurrection was winding down, but lots of new teachings that were creeping into the church. The church was facing some tough times. You see, the Christians in Asia Minor had reached a major fork in the road. Here's what had happened. There was new ideas. As the apostles were fading from the scene in history, new ideas were starting to come into the church, which departed from the faith that had been once handed down and delivered to the saints. And eventually, this painful split would deeply wound the churches in Asia Minor. And it would cause terrible division in the church of Jesus Christ, and leading many into a false religion that later became known as Gnosticism. Now, Gnosticism is very similar to what's being taught today. It's very similar to being what is taught in the New Age movement. When the church began to spread From Judea to Greece, the church began to encounter more and more of these teachings. And the Gnostics, you see, we're not going to spend too much time on this, but the Gnostics did not see how a good God could have created an evil physical world. So they came up with their own system. Isn't that what people do? They came up with their own system of belief to try to explain it all. They believed that the spirit of a person was good, but the the flesh wasn't. So in their line of thinking, the spirit was not affected by what the flesh did. And therefore, there was no accountability. The flesh could do whatever it wanted, and it would not affect the spirit. Meaning, they thought they could live however they wanted, and yet claimed to be spiritual people. A lot of Christians still try to do this today, don't they? Others taught that it was impossible for God, since God is a spirit and is morally good, to take on a physical and corrupt body. So the idea was, in their thinking, Jesus did not have a real body, but only seemed to have a physical body. Some didn't believe that Jesus had come in the flesh as a real person. They believed he did not have a body, but that he came only in spirit. Some taught that Jesus did not really die. Now, why does all this matter? Here's why it matters. is because these teachings struck at the very heart of the Christian faith by denying the physical death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These teachings changed the gospel. No longer was salvation found through the substitutionary atonement of Christ for our sins. Salvation was now found by gaining the special and mystical knowledge of God So John, he wrote this letter as a roadmap to help the confused and troubled Christians in Asia Minor. But friends, it also gives us a roadmap for staying focused on Jesus Christ, for staying focused on the message of life, for staying in fellowship with him and grounded in his love. John was sharing from his heart about a Savior with whom he had personal knowledge of. More than any other New Testament writer, I think that John, John... New Jesus. So watch how we begin. Verse one says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon in our hands have handled concerning what? The word of life. Now, John starts with the reality of Christ and the truth set forth in these opening verses is the cornerstone, the very cornerstone of our faith without the truth that John is teaching. Our faith is completely worthless. This is the standard by which we can test the false doctrines that try to creep into the church. Now notice the structure of what John wrote. He says, that which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked upon. John is talking about one thing, one thing, the reality of the historical manifestation of eternal life in the incarnate Christ. So John starts with the truth of the incarnation of Christ and then moves to the apostolic experience with the incarnate Christ. Just take the first phrase of verse one. Just break it down. It says, that which was from the beginning. Now this makes me think of how John started the gospel of John. Do you remember how he started the gospel of John? He says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was who? God, God, In the gospel of John, the point of the first verse is that the word existed before creation. Jesus Christ existed before creation. He is the creator. So of course he existed before creation. But John, see in 1 John, he's heading in a different direction. Here he's going in a different direction. Because in 1 John, we are talking specifically about the incarnation of Christ. We are talking about God the Son taking on a human form. So if you want to tie this verse in 1 John to the first chapter of the Gospel of John, tie it to verse 14 in that chapter, where John recorded this, "...and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld what? His glory." Because this is what John is talking about in this first verse here in first John. And so watch what he does. And the next three phrases in verse one, they build off this and give us three statements. There's three statements here about the experiences of the apostles with the incarnate Christ. John wanted believers to know that the truth of who Christ is, is grounded in history. And what John tells us is that all of the apostles, all of the apostles, they bore witness to the reality of the incarnation of God, the son. You see the new ideas about, about Christ then, or the new ideas that sell books today about Jesus Christ. They don't, form our doctrine. They don't form our beliefs. I don't care how many books they sell or how popular it is on YouTube. They don't form our doctrine. And John is telling the church, what you believe about Jesus Christ, it matters. What you believe about Jesus Christ matters because we rest our beliefs directly on the apostolic witness that has been handed down. Do you guys remember Hebrews 1? God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by who? His Son. The revelation of God came to us through God the Son. The apostles heard his teaching firsthand, and what they heard transformed them, that this was not just a man. This was not just another human being. This was God the Son who took on a human form. Now the apostles John is telling us the apostles had seen with their own eyes. Jesus had a physical body. All the apostles had seen this. They walked with him. They talked with him. They knew Jesus the Christ. And look at what John says, which we've looked upon and our hands have handled. We touched him. Notice the progression. First we heard. First they had heard. Then they had seen. Then they looked upon Intently is the idea. They looked intently and then they touched the Christ. The apostles didn't doubt it because they knew. They lived with Christ. They had physical contact with the Savior. Little by little, the Savior had drawn them closer. And little by little, Christians, he draws us closer. Even after the resurrection of Christ, we see in John chapter 20, that in regard to the body of Jesus, we're still talking of a body that can be touched and can be seen. And notice how John finishes off verse one. He says concerning the word of life. Now, everything that John had proclaimed up until this point was concerning this, the word of life. And hear this carefully, not just a reference to the gospel of Christ. The subject has been the incarnate Christ. Life is found not just in this message, not just in words, but life is found in a person, in Jesus, in Jesus the Christ. Eternal life is rooted and grounded in him, in Christ. And then verse two, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us. Now, if you were God, how would you reveal yourself to men? How would you do it? Well, here was God's plan. The life was manifested. This statement declares the appearing of the incarnate life of Christ. Here on earth, a historical truth. That event happened in the Gospel of John. The word is a title for the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Here, life is a title for Jesus the Christ. That is who he is, life. Notice again the testimony of John. We have seen and bear witness. Remember the Great Commission in Matthew 28? The disciples were instructed to proclaim the message of Christ until the ends of the earth. John, in his old age, as an old man, still stood by the words and life of Christ as the authentic message of God. Not only had the apostles seen the ministry of Christ, not only were they standing ready to bear witness of his life, his death and his resurrection, but John adds to it and says, and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us. So don't just read through these verses and pass through it. Stop. Stop in the text. Ask yourself some questions. Do your own homework. Do some Bible study. Stop and ask yourself the question, what did John mean when he referred to eternal life? Because whatever or whoever it is was with the Father, but yet also distinct from the Father. And whatever or whoever it is was manifested to us. John just gave us these statements in verse one about the manifestation of the son of God, the incarnate Christ. So what we have here with this statement is that the pre incarnate Christ, Christ himself is the very embodiment of eternal life. John is making it known to us Christians that Christ is so much more than just a man. He's not just a man. He is eternal. He is God, the Son. And the reality of the incarnate life of Jesus was something that wasn't even questioned by the apostles because they walked with him, talked with him, touched him. They spent time with him. So watch verse 3. Writing about the manifestation of God, the Son, John writes, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So here we go. We've been building all morning to this. Listen closely. Verses 3 and 4 in 1 John are the keys that unlock the beautiful teachings of 1 John. It is an interpretive mistake made by many to equate in verse 3, fellowship with being a Christian. They're not identical. They are not identical. Fellowship is not the same as just becoming a Christian. See, I used to believe when I looked at 1 John long ago that chapter five, verse 13 was the statement for the purpose of this entire epistle. You remember the verse, it says this, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the son of God. Take some time, take some time this week to look at the context. Cause as we've said about a thousand times in this church, context determines meaning context, always determines meaning. And John wrote that statement in chapter five, referring only to what had been written in the verses just before it. He wrote those words in chapter five, not for men to question their salvation, but to give them confidence in the promises of God regarding their salvation. There's a big difference. Let me say it again. He wrote those words in chapter 5, not for men to question their salvation, but to give them confidence in the promises of God regarding their salvation. So what's going on in chapter 1 then? Well, here in chapter 1, the subject matter has been the truth about eternal life that was revealed from the beginning to the apostolic witnesses You see, faith in Christ for salvation puts you into the family of God. Faith in Christ for salvation puts you into the family of God. And once in Christ, 1 Peter 1.5 seals the deal and tells us that no believer can ever leave the family of God. If you're a child of God, you cannot leave the family of God. But what this epistle is about is found in verse 3, fellowship with God, not just with Christ, but with who? The apostles too. Remember what John had said in verse 1. They had seen, they had heard, they had touched the eternal Christ. They had touched eternal life himself. But this fellowship centers around the Father and it centers around Christ. That's the last part of verse 3. Notice what it says. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. See, fellowship with the apostles means this. It means that fellowship with God the Father and God the Son. And that's why John starts out verse 3 by saying that which we have seen and heard. John is tying back to verse 1, the life, the ministry, the death and resurrection of Christ, which the apostles had witnessed firsthand. John was seeking to end the doctrines of men which sought to deny the human nature of Christ and the physical appearing of Christ and the bodily resurrection of Christ. What they had seen and what they had heard in the life and ministry of Christ, the apostles went from town to town all throughout the Roman Empire declaring the message to the early church that had been faithful and passing it on to others, this message that they'd been entrusted with. The apostles of Christ, they understood their duty before men, and before God. They understood their duty, that it was a privilege and an honor for them to pass on the teachings of Jesus Christ. And I hope, Christians, you guys are understanding this privilege and this responsibility that we bear before a holy and righteous God to share the message of Christ. So here comes the purpose in verse 3. Here's the purpose, that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus, the Christ. The bond of faith which unites us is our faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, if we didn't have faith in Jesus Christ, we might as well just go do something else, watch football, anything. But it's our faith in Christ that unites us, which is based on what? The apostolic message that has been given to us. This is the bedrock for our fellowship in Christ. I was reading about a young boy who would escape his bedroom after being punished I used to be that young boy that would do that well this young boy he would crawl out of his bedroom window down an old fruit tree to get down to the ground one day his father told him he was going to chop down the fruit tree because it hadn't given any fruit in years well the boy panicked this was his escape route how do you get out now So he went with his friend and they bought a whole bushel of apples. They thought they were so smart. And during the night, they went out there and they tied these apples to the branches. And the next morning, the man couldn't believe what he saw. So he said to his wife, he said, honey, I can't believe it. That old tree hasn't yielded fruit for years. And now it's covered with apples. And the most amazing part is that it's a pear tree. The point is, there's more than one reason of why people don't bear fruit to God. I want you to hear that because it's a very important teaching that affects your Christian life. There is more than one reason of why people don't bear fruit to God. Either one of two things. They do not belong to the family of God, or they're not living in fellowship with God. Living out of fellowship with God, we can compare it to a lot of different things. Think of it in the word of God as this, walking in the darkness instead of the light, First John 1, 6 through 7. We can think of it as, in scriptures, as walking by sight instead of by faith, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. We can think of it as walking in the flesh instead of the spirit, that's Galatians 5, of course. And failing to abide in Christ, John 15. See, John was not trying to convert these people. It's obvious. He considered them already reconciled to God. They had faith. They were a part of the family of God. And we can show this from the scriptures. Listen to some of the words of chapter two. What does he say? I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Or he goes on. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known who? The father. He says, I've written to you fathers because you have known him who is from the beginning. I've written to you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and that you've overcome the wicked one. These are words clearly written to believers. Or listen to chapter two, verse 21. I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. Verse 27 of chapter 2 teaches that they had the Spirit of God living in them. And chapter 3 starts out by testifying, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Now here's what this means and here's why this is so important to your faith. The goal for the believer in Christ is this. Are you ready? It is to live in fellowship with God. If you are a believer in Christ, your goal is to live in fellowship with God. And the absolute beauty of it all is that 1 John is written for this purpose to teach us how to do it. Notice verse 4. Here we get to the heart of the matter. He says, in these things we write to you that your joy may be full. So what does it mean to be full of joy? Well, Proverbs 13 says that the way of the transgressors is hard. Let's say it like this. Sin leads to misery. Sin leads to problems. You ever notice that when you sin, bad things follow? Sin leads to misery. Joy is living in fellowship with God. Joy runs deeper than the pain or pleasures of life. It's not tied to our circumstances. Joy is something that comes from God. Joy is something that you can have even when you're going through the most difficult circumstances and times in your life joy is what it's part of the fruit of the spirit isn't it it's part of the fruit of the spirit joy is something God wants for you joy flows right on through the trouble it flows through the persecution and the world cannot know this joy the lost people cannot because it comes by walking with him now in John 15, Christ told the disciples to abide in his love. Why? He said, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. See, this is an important point in the Christian faith. This is what John wanted to pass on. The joy that comes from Christ, from fellowship with God. Now, a lack of joy, Is a good indicator that as a believer in Christ, you're not living in fellowship with the Savior. So let me give you the example that John gives in our next three verses. He says this. This is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. John is showing us how we can have fellowship with God. And he states the basic principle that God is light and in him is no darkness. God is pure. God is holy. God is free from sin. And verse 6 teaches us that if we say we're living in fellowship with God, but yet we continue to sin, we walk in darkness, we're lying. We're liars at that point, okay? It means going to church and saying, I didn't sin this week. And you know you did. You know you did, okay? We're not telling the truth. We're not living consistently with the truth. And again, not referring to unbelievers, because what did John say? He says, if we, if we, Same thing he did in verse 5, referring to the apostles. And if you want to be accurate here, notice that he does this all throughout this text. Watch for it, because it helps you to understand the passage. Let me ask you this question. And husbands, your wives are watching you, and so is God. Is it possible for Christians to sin? Yeah, some of you just did, liars. Is it possible for Christians to lie? Of course. Was it possible for the apostles to sin? Absolutely. What's the solution for the believer in Christ? Verse 7, walk in the light. In other words, abide in Jesus Christ. Abide in Christ. And what happens? We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from some sin. No, all sin. See, if I entered into a lighted room and walked in it, I'm walking in the light at that point. Correct? If I walk in a lighted room, I'm walking in the light. I'm walking around in a room where light not only shines on me, but on everything around me. I can see. To walk in the light is to live in the presence of God. How? Through his word, through prayer. But to walk in darkness, in verse 6, is to attempt to hide from God, to refuse to acknowledge what we know about him. Walking in the light is not here at sinless perfection. It's about an openness and honesty in the presence of God himself. If you're not honest with your spouse, if you're not honest with your boss, if you're not honest with your friend, what's going to happen? It's going to hurt your fellowship, isn't it? See, if you start lying to one another, it hurts your fellowship. Same with God. Walking in the light leads to fellowship with God, but something else happens as we walk in the light. Notice again the end of verse 7. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now watch the wording. Cleanses us. Present tense. Not past tense. It's present tense. So how is it? Have you ever thought of this? How is it possible for believers to have fellowship with a holy and perfect God? Because we still sin. And the Bible teaches that as believers, we've already been cleansed. We've received forgiveness for all our sins, meaning we no longer stand condemned for our sins. And positionally, positionally, God sees us as holy, as righteous, as sinless, as perfect. But like a father and a child, there's still a relationship to consider. There's still our sinful condition See, if my son or one of our daughters will pick on Hannah because she's away at college, so we'll just pick on Hannah. But let's say Hannah sins against me. They're still part of my family, but our fellowship in our home is damaged. Once a part of the family of Mark, always a part of the family of Mark. Once a part of the family of God, always a part of the family of God. But in this father and child relationship, if we are open and honest relationship with God, see, then our sins don't block our fellowship. With God. There's an ongoing forgiveness in this relationship, and there's an ongoing cleansing based on the blood of Christ that makes it possible for imperfect children like you and me to have a genuine fellowship with a perfect and holy Father that's in heaven. And so, really, what John is saying is that every moment of precious fellowship with God, every single moment, is a moment bought for us by the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus the Christ. This is the cleansing for sin from the defilement of our day-to-day sin that hinders our fellowship with God. Hebrews talks of this. It talks of the cleansing of the conscience from guilt and a defilement before a holy God, meaning as we walk in the light of Christ, his blood keeps cleansing our sinful condition, making fellowship with God even possible. A pastor a friend of mine likes to tell the story of a time years ago when his son was little, very little. And it was a Saturday night. And my friend Dave was in his study. And Saturday nights are protected if you're a pastor. You don't, don't like a lot of interruptions on Saturday nights. And his little Jimmy was supposed to be in bed. And that's just kind of one of those things that can aggravate you sometimes. But Dave heard that door open and little five-year-old Jimmy was standing there with his big blue eyes. And something had scared little Jimmy. And just about to send him back into bed, Dave told little Jimmy, hey, you're supposed to be in bed. And so he asked him, he said, what do you need? And little Jimmy looked up at Dave and said, nothing, Daddy. Nothing. I don't want anything. I just want to be close to you. Well, of course, Dave opened his arms and drew him close. And I think this is what Scripture's teaching. See, this is what James was saying when he said, draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. This is also the message of first John, because there's nothing like being close to God. There's nothing like it. See, we, we try to look for counterfeits out there today, drugs, alcohol, TV, buying things. But none of us can take us closer to God, and it leads us to emptiness, and it leads us to feeling alone. John is telling us here that fellowship with God, the blood of his son, it makes it all possible. So let's wrap it up with our last three verses and notice how this all fits together. He says this, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Is it possible for believers to deceive themselves? Absolutely. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Guilt is a good thing. Guilt is a very good thing. No one likes to feel guilty. You don't like to feel that emotion or feeling. But guilt exposes the very truth that we have all sinned. John says it like this. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But that is not where John leaves us. John gives us this picture of a forgiving God. Now, most of us have memorized verse 9. This is for the believer in Christ. And guilt unlocks the door to forgiveness. A parallel verse Proverbs 28 verse 13, it says this, he who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. It all starts with a genuine openness before God, an honest conversation with the God who already knows what's going on in your life. He already knows every thought. He already knows every action. He already knows everything you've done, but God's forgiveness in this parent-child relationship, it starts with confession. It goes against the grain. We don't want to admit our sin. We don't want to admit our sin. It's easier to ignore it. It's easier to try to justify our actions. I did this, but you know, the reason why I did this was because this, this, and this, and this, and this, or we try to explain it away. It's easier to do that than to admit that we still need the grace of God. But confession leads to forgiveness. See, confession leads to cleansing. Confession leads to a restoration of our fellowship with God. Confession is just simply this. It's telling God, God, I agree with you. I admit my sins before you. I admit I need your mercy. And this is something, there's a promise here you can count on because God is faithful. God keeps his word. He is just, meaning that God is able to maintain his perfect holiness and forgive us because of the perfect and righteous sacrifice of who? Jesus the Christ. This is not justification in 1 John 1, 9. This is sanctification for the believer. And here is the beauty of this verse, something you may not see for some time, but it's there and it's beautiful. He forgives us of the sins that the spirit of God convicts us of. Yes, he does. He forgives us of the sins that we confess. But what about the sins we have that we aren't even aware of? What about those? What about the wickedness of the heart? What about the things we don't even think of? That's the last part of verse nine. He cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Confessing the sins we know of also means a cleansing from all unrighteousness. And so then John rounds out the chapter by addressing the believer, any believer that would dare to say that we have no sin. In our pride, when we do this, we're calling God a liar. Because God has already spelled out the penetrating nature of our sin in his word. And if you deny his truth, it means his word is not in us. In other words, you're not allowing the word of God to transform your thinking because pride and stubbornness is keeping you from walking with the Savior. Some of you guys remember this guy. It's one of my favorite characters from church history. Billy Bray. He lived in the early 1800s. This guy was a hoot and a holler. Billy was born into a rough mining town back in the day of 1794 in Cornwall, England. Now his family followed Christ, but not Billy. Billy, he didn't show any interest in the things of God. He was one of those that you pray for and put on the prayer list. At age 17, he ran away. He lived the life of a drunk, a depraved life. He was very far from God. Billy got married, he fathered seven children, but his wife used to have to go down to the local pub just to drag him out of there so he wouldn't spend all of their money at the pub, because providing for his family was not as important to him as it was going to the pub. Two different times in his life, he was almost killed, once in a mine accident and another time as he rode a stolen horse while he was drunk, and finally he was confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And convicted of sin, completely miserable in his sin, he knelt by his bed at 3 in the morning and asked God to save his soul. And from that day forever forward, his life changed. Now, the very next day, there was an immediate transformation. It was payday at the mine. That night, the pubs would be full. That's how it went. Music playing, mine workers all there, spending their, their pay, their money, their hard-earned money on getting drunk. But yet, Billy Bray would not be one of them, because for the first time in years... He came home sober to his wife. He gave up smoking. He gave up drinking once and for all. All his friends thought with time he'd come back. He'd go back to his old ways. He'd come back to the pub, but he never did. Billy went on to be a man who was deeply committed to winning souls to the Lord. It's said that he never met one person. I wish I could say this about my own life. He never met one person without inquiring as to the condition of their soul. He wasn't very educated, didn't matter to God. He became a speaker at meetings, urged his fellow workers in the mines and neighbors to come to Jesus Christ. And when someone came around Billy, he was always smiling. He was just grinning, singing and praising God because Billy was so happy about his life in Christ. And he shouted all the time. He bothered people. He had so much joy just shouting and praising God all the time. And so somebody said to him one time, Billy Bray, why don't you please tone it down some? Just bring her down a notch. You're just too happy. You just have too much joy all the time. And Billy responded, I can't help it. I can't help it. God saved me and I can't help it. I can't help praising God, Billy insisted. And as I go along the street, I put one foot down, it says, hallelujah. And I put the other foot down, it says, glory to God. And at one time, someone said to him, Billy, Billy, suppose you're mistaken. Suppose when you die, you find out you're not going to heaven after all, that you're going to end up in hell. And old Billy said, praise God. I've been having a wonderful time in the Lord throughout all these years. Jesus has been so good to me. And if I could die and go down to hell, then I'll be thankful for the joy Jesus has brought into my life. And then he responded sort of tongue in cheek, not really meaning the theological point. He said, and then they're going to have to send me up to heaven because they can't stand that kind of joy down there. He was criticized quite often for his passion, but his love for God was real. And when his wife died, see, that's when the test comes. When his wife died, he still continued in that joy. He didn't miss a beat. And he praised the Lord. She was now with Jesus Christ. The goodness of God made him glad, even in the difficult times, even in the sorrow. And on his deathbed, this man trying to get the man, the doctor, to come to salvation, he asked the doctor who had just told him he's dying. He said, when I get up there, shall I tell them that you'll be coming too? Billy Bray died at 74 years of age, still praising the Lord. Here's a man, here's a man that learned to live fellowship with his God. He learned to live in fellowship with his God. Here was a man that had the joy of Christ pouring through him. Lord, make us more like him. We like to attach ourselves to the things in this world that take us out of fellowship with our God. And the results are never good, are they? Don't ask God to defend and protect your bad decisions in life. Don't do that. That's shallow. Faith in the truth of the gospel of Christ is the grounds for our fellowship. But it does not mean we're always abiding in Christ. Don't kid yourself. There's no substitute for the joy of the Lord. This is what 1 John is about. This is what John wanted to pass on. This was his purpose for writing. The joy that comes from walking with Jesus Christ. From fellowship with God. A lack of joy is a good indicator that as a believer in Christ, you're not living in fellowship with the Savior. And life is difficult. It's not that life can be difficult. Life is difficult. And if you don't know that, you're not an adult living on your own yet. Life is difficult, okay? Life is difficult. If you pay the bills, life is difficult. And we don't always have to love everything that we're going through. It doesn't mean we have to enjoy those things. But it does mean this. There's no substitute for the peace that comes by walking with Jesus Christ. In 3 John, verse 4, the apostle went on to say, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in the truth. Guys, that's my heartbeat for ministry. It's the purpose that I'm here. That's why I'm here. When Christians learn this and start living it, And as a child of God, our joy comes as we walk with him. Our joy comes as we live in fellowship with him. And our joy should come, Christians, as we teach others to do the same. And Paul, he told the believers in Rome, he said, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So learn to live in Christ. Learn to live in his peace until the day that were are safely taken home.
0: Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com Return to the Word that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.